The Bible's um, an interesting book. You pick up a Bible if you, actually very often we flick it on, on our phones these days, but you pick up a Bible. And uh, for those of you, might, the Bible might not be something that you're used to. The Bible's in two big chunks. The chunk in the, the bit that we call the Old Testament uh, is the story the, of God with his people right the way through until Jesus is born. And then we have the New Testament, which is the next smaller chunk, which runs from the point where Jesus was born all the way through until pretty much those 12 disciples who we talk about and we know about uh, have lived their lives. And one of the, one of the few, in fact, the only disciple um, who was able to live out and die a natural death was John. All of the other believers in Jesus, all of the other disciples of Jesus, rather, were martyred. They were killed uh, for their faith. John was unique in that he lived out his life. And as an old man, he wrote a number of um, letters and books. One of them we call the Gospel, which is his account of the life of Jesus. So if you pick up a Bible, you open at the New Testament, and you've got what we probably most of us have heard about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the accounts of the life of Jesus. Then everything after that, by the power of God working through his people, through the Holy Spirit, is the explanation of what the life of Jesus really was all about and the anticipation of what the life of Jesus was all about. That's, what, that's kind of orientating in us in big chunks as to how the Bible works. And actually what we've witnessed this afternoon is an amazing time which sits right in the storyline of the Bible and the text that we've got this afternoon. And, and as a church, uh, we're working through the book of John, which is uh, we call it 1 John. He wrote three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And we're working through the book of 1 John, little by little. And we're coming to these three verses, which, to be honest, almost couldn't be better for a baptism service. They are absolutely perfect. I don't know whether we booked the baptismal service by working out where our, our texts were, or whether the texts were there and then we found, amazingly, that the baptism is, is sitting on uh, this particular three texts. But they truly are amazing. I, I would say, I, I guess many of us are used to the idea that um, one of the things that advertising companies really try to do is they try to capture an idea and capture an essence of something in a very short number of words so that you and me will remember it and we'll go out and buy their product. Well, if, the, if you're coming to the Bible for the first time, quite honestly, John, in 18 words, at the beginning of chapter 3, captures the great news of Jesus. Look at what he says in uh, John chapter 3 and verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Those few words there capture 
the whole of the idea of the message of the Bible, of the message of Jesus, and why it's relevant for us today. Those 18 words. If we can stick with those 18 words and then work out what they say and see how the subsequent verses follow on. If we can work through that this afternoon, we will have done a great job. I don't know where everybody is coming from, whether you're online, whether you're catching up later on, whether you're in this country catching up, or whether you're in another part of the world, or whether you're here in the room this afternoon. I don't know what your experience of the message of the Bible is. I know some of your experiences. We've shared experiences this afternoon, which has been tremendous. But for some of us, we might be coming along and the message of the Bible is something we are completely oblivious of and quite honestly don't want to know anything about it. It might be something that we're curious about. It might be something that we really are seriously considering or it might be something that we are absolutely holding on to. It's, it is essential to our lives. I hope that as we work through these few verses this afternoon, wherever you are on that spectrum, what we cover might be helpful in our understanding of the significance of this man, Jesus. If you're a believer, you guys, as believers in Jesus who've just been baptized, I really hope that you can hold on to this, uh, these thoughts this afternoon. And, and if, you, if you're going to hold on to anything, hold on to the back end of that sentence. Because it's quite simply this. We are called children of God. That's an amazing thing. So we're going to look at it really quite quickly. I just want to look at it in, uh, under three headings. The first thing I want to see is a gift. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. There's the gift. Let's spot the gift. The gift is the love that the Father has lavished on us. John's really careful in the words that he chooses. He doesn't just say, do you know that the Father loves you? He says, the Father has lavished, been exuberant, been incredibly dramatic in the love that He has poured out on those who believe in His Son. He's lavished that love on us. But it's even more than that. I had a quick chat with Ash, who was going to preach this afternoon, and he pointed me into some of his thinking. It was incredibly helpful. And uh, I want to illustrate it by asking you this question. Have you ever been asked the question, do you love me? <laughs> that is a well-dodgy question to answer. It's a really, you, you're going to get yourself in hot water if you can't answer that question, do you love me correctly? You can really be in trouble. But it's a really difficult question to answer, isn't it? And one of the reasons it's difficult to answer that question, do you love me, is because we have one word, love. And the Greeks were really smart because they understood that actually love 
comes in all sorts of different ways. And therefore, they have different words for love. And the word that we have here is a word agape. And agape is a very specific kind of love. And it's a love which describes, I'm going to use a long word here, the transcendent love of God. And the love that we can show back to God. Transcendent means this. It's something which jumps over a huge gap. It reaches out beyond something. It, it extends to something which seems impossible. That's what transcendent means. And John is saying here, do you know the kind of love that the Father has poured out on you is a love which reaches over What's it reaching over? It's reaching over the difference in the nature between us as human beings and God who is the God of heaven and earth. There couldn't be anything more different, could there? Us human beings and the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, our natures are so dramatically different. And John says, the kind of love that God has showed, out, showed to you is the love that reaches over that gap. That's amazing news. Secondly, it's a love which reaches over our rebellion. Because the God who's created us, who's written into us that sense of right and wrong by our conscience, which we rebel against, he reaches out beyond, reaches over that. He transcends that barrier. We'll come back to how he does that in a minute. But secondly, he transcends with a capacity to love every single one of us uniquely in a way that we could never achieve. How many people can you truly love? I mean, how many people can you truly, truly, truly love? One, two, three, four. Not a countless number. But the nature of God is that He's got a love which can reach over that, that gap of capacity, that gap of capability to be able to love more than this roomful an incredible, countless number, the Bible describes, of those who believe in His Son. That's the kind of love that Jesus reaches out and, and extends to us. John puts it like this. He's kind of building up. Remember me saying he wrote, his he wrote his account of Jesus and then his letter. Right at the beginning of his account of Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 12, he says this, Yet all who did receive him, Jesus, people who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. See how John's saying that this isn't a new idea. This is something that I wrote about in my first account of Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you have the right to be considered to be a child of God. What a privilege. I want to ask you a question. Wherever you are, whether you're here, whether you're online, 
Who are you in life? Who are you? What is your status? For some of you, you might be thinking, well, actually, do you know? Done relatively well. Some of you might be thinking, done extraordinarily well. There might even be that tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people who are beyond extraordinarily well, who have the accolade of the masses, who have achieved more in this life than anybody could imagine. No matter where you are in that spectrum of who we are in life, this verse says that anybody who believes in Jesus is greater than all of those. <laughs> because we're not defined according to this verse, believing in Jesus, by the measures that we give each other. We're defined by a relationship with God where he says, you are my child. That definition, that description to be a child of God is greater than anything that you could ever imagine. And actually what it means that if we can claim that, claim that title, claim that definition that I am a child of God, we are elevated to a status beyond anything that we could ever consider. It transforms who we are. And it also creates a separation. See what John says there in the back end of verse 1. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that, we, he, is that it did not know Him. <laughs> Do you know the Christian faith from its very inception? The world has tried to crush it. Let me put my hand up and say, over the centuries, being honest, there have been times when the Chris, or what has claimed to be the Christian church has also done some terrible things. But in general terms, the church of Jesus Christ is a weak, broken, shattered, fragile thing which is crushed again and again and again. Across the world, even today, there are those who are losing their lives because they believe in Jesus, which is exactly what John was writing about here. You believe in Jesus, you face death. And yet against all human odds and expectations, the church of Jesus Christ continues to grow. In fact, paradoxically, what we find again and again and again throughout history is the places where it is most oppressed are ultimately seen to be the places where it most grows. China, a place where the Christian faith has been opposed for hundreds of years. And yet even now the church is growing at a rate which means that the Chinese believers in Jesus are going to outnumber those in the West 
within a very short space of time. How is that? How is that? Is it possible that it is because of a greater power which is working behind the church? Well, we might have an answer in this, these few verses. In fact, I think we've got an answer in the next verse. Because the first thing is we see a gift, but the second thing is we see that it is eternal. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's a right mouthful, isn't it? So let's just break it down and make it really easy. John's saying this. He's saying to believers in Jesus, we're children of God, but right now what we see isn't the full thing. Wait. <laughs> because when Jesus returns, then we'll really see what it's all about. Because we will be like him. That means, according to John, that, the faith, that faith in Jesus is not a life thing. It's an eternal thing. It's something that goes beyond this life on an individual basis. I think we have written into our natures a desperate, desperate desire for this life not to be everything there is. We have written into us a spiritual dimension which, which pleads with our minds to say, please make sure that this isn't everything. And what these few verses are and what this representation of baptism that we've just seen is all about, it's saying that we're connected to a man who lived 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth. Quite honestly, what we've just witnessed, what we're talking through this afternoon, is utterly meaningless without this verse. It's a waste of time. It's a complete waste of time. If it's all about following a good man called Jesus, I would recommend that you go and do something else. Find something else to follow. But, if Jesus died on a cross, was buried in the ground, rose again three days later, and returned to heaven, then that changes everything. That means that when we align ourselves with that Jesus, according to John, he is saying that what we see as children of God now, is not what it truly is. Because there is going to come a day when we will see the resurrected Jesus and we will live eternally. That sounds like crazy stuff. It sounds like crazy stuff. Apart from the fact that it is founded on the eyewitness accounts of the risen Jesus. If, if Jesus rose from the dead, then none of us can ignore that single historical event. 
because it changes everything. It means that our perceptions of what we are as human beings are, are on shaky ground if we think that this is everything that there is, so make the best you can in this life. If Jesus is the single moment in the history of the world that says humanity has an eternal dimension, then it changes everything. It says that we have to consider the possibility that faith in Jesus Christ gives us hope for eternity. Do you know, I, I, I am so thankful that this is not everything. I am so thankful that this life, which is difficult or hard and seems so unfair, is resolved by the eternal resurrected Jesus. And John says here, there's going to come a day when you'll be like him. Because this amazing love is eternal. And then the final thing is this. This eternal love is cleansing. Look at what it says in verse 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. The life that Jesus lived and the resurrection that he displayed was possible only because of one thing. And it's this, that the life that he lived was a pure life which did not justify the judgment of death. Just think about that for a minute. The life that Jesus lived was pure and didn't justify the judgment of death. But he died, didn't he? But it was the life that he lived that justified the fact that he then rose from the grave. And he returned to life. And suddenly the life that he lived becomes the life that we might take on as ours. That's what baptism signifies. It says that we who are not pure might die and rise again, and it is, the, it is as though we are now pure. That's the beauty of the message of the gospel. That's the beauty of this great love that the Father has lavished on us, that we can be called pure children of God. Because the pure life that Jesus lived is the life which is now ours. And it is now ours because he bore our unworthy lives and it resulted in his death. Luther called it the great exchange. I think it's a brilliant description. And it was quite simply this. He exchanges his pure life for our unworthy lives. And the unworthy life that we carry is given to him he bears our guilt, and yet his worthy life becomes the grounds on which he defeats that death and comes to life. And therefore, we are, if we are children of God, let's think about this, we are pure. 
but we also have a motivation to then pursue purity, to live a life which is different, to live a life which is, which is kind of like, um, it's kind of like a graph of, of failures and successes and failures, but it's got a journey which is different to what it previously was. It's a life which is now pursuing purity because God is pure. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, his eternal ascension, he says, I invite you now to seek to live like me. Pursue purity. Not that you will achieve it, but don't, don't be concerned about that because you already have my pure life accounted to you. But pursue it anyway. Here's the thing. And if we can get our heads around this, we have got, we've got into our minds the concept of what the Bible calls grace. Something that we don't receive. And it's this. As believers in Jesus Christ, we now pursue purity because we are children of God. We don't pursue purity so that we can become children of God. I wish I'd understood that when I was younger. That is liberating. It means that we pursue purity because of who we are, not so that we can achieve it. Because the reality is, if we're pursuing purity so that we can achieve the qualification to be children of God, we're going to fail. We're going to be a, just a mess. Constantly feeling full of guilt and failure. But the reality is, John says, you're a child of God. So pursue purity. Because of who you are. So there we are. That's the message of the gospel. It's what we've just celebrated by people being baptized. For some, it might seem so strange. But you might have heard things here which you say, mm, I need to find out more about that. I want to encourage you, have a chat with the guys, have a chat with Ash and Jude when they come back out of isolation, drop us an email, reach out on social media, grab a hold of me at the door. If you violently disagree with me, grab a hold of me at the door. <laughs> um, I would really appreciate you to violently disagree only verbally. That would be really great. Um, but I commend the hope of Jesus and the life that he offers as something to pursue.